We're going to be reading in uh, John 15. So you can turn to that. We're going to be in, let's see, John 15, uh, 14 and 15. So, all right, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. This is God's word. Pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is life, it's power, Lord. It's uh, the clear expression of your will and your wisdom and your heart towards us. And God, we, we celebrate this morning a word that tells us that though we, we live to be your servants and even your slaves, oh God, we, we thank you that, that looking past that, you said, I want to call you friends. Lord, we, we know how unworthy we are even to be your slaves, let alone your friends, but it is grace that has been revealed by the cross of Jesus that has allowed us to be the friends of God. And we thank you for that. Lord, help us not take it for granted this morning. And God, I pray that you would allow that, that truth to burn in our hearts this morning. God, I also want to pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us um, through your word in, in innumerable ways, God, that, that our ears would be open to hearing what the Spirit is saying. And God, that you would uh, uh, enable me to do it uh, in a way that brings you glory and uh, uh, a way that that sheds light on what you have said to make it to make it uh, uh, truthful and life changing to people who need to hear it. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We we are um, in our third week on a series of. I, I really don't know what to call this series because it's kind of different than any I've ever done before. So let's just call it comparative concepts. Um, we've looked at each week, we've put two things side by side and things that you might have a general understanding of those things, especially if you've been brought up in church. Um, and so like the first week, for example, we talked about um, the compatibility that exists between justification and sanctification. And then last week, we did something a little bit different. We, we had this kind of uh, comparison of two things, one of which is definitely superior to the other. We talked about the weakness of assuming our eternal security based on some religious action or some standard that we uh, have set up or that someone's imposed upon us versus uh, the powerful inner assurance of salvation that can only be given to you and I by the Holy Spirit of God. And we, we determined that the assurance that God gives is much superior than just to some assumption of, uh, of being right with God based on our own standard. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to continue this kind of side-by-side comparison. And today, the two things I want to talk about are much more closely related than uh, perhaps the other weeks. I want to talk about union with Christ and what that is and the resulting communion with Christ uh, that happens when we are in union with Christ, to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection 
Several books in the New Testament talk about this, that we are, we're literally united with Christ, that, that we have died to sin as he died on the cross. That when he died, the Bible says, that we died with him. And, and more importantly for us, that when he was raised, that we also were raised to a brand new kind of life. Here, here's what I want you to know. Let's, let's imagine that you became a born-again believer in Jesus Christ a month ago. What I want you to understand is if that is true about you, you are not the same person that existed a month ago. You're not. The Bible says that you're brand new, that you're living a brand new kind of life. Now you might look in the mirror and you see the same face. You look into the closet of your soul and you see the same kind of actions way too frequently. But I'm telling you that the the message of scripture is that if you are in Christ, you are brand new. And that's what I mean by union with Christ. We'll explore that a little bit more uh Deeply, But this kind of union through Christ's death and resurrection is absolutely necessary if you're going to have, it's a necessary prerequisite to having life-giving, heart-changing, joy and peace producing fellowship with God. And so what does it look like? What does it mean to be united with Christ? I said last week that sadly, most Christians in the modern era in the last, let's say, 100, 150 years, look at their salvation as simply a transaction. It's a, it's a contract that they have with God. Um, and, and the contract is based on their belief of a single truth, one single truth. If you ask most church children what Jesus did, they will say he died on the cross for our sins. And so what we do is we assign all of our belief to that one singular fact. Now, how many of you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Good. Uh, I wish all of your hands were up. Jesus absolutely did die on our cross for our sins. Where we get tripped up is when we don't understand the work of Christ as anything more than that. We assume that believing, that in believing this one singular fact that we're guaranteed eternal life and perhaps some other benefits because God, through our contract, is somehow obligated to us because we have met the legal requirement for forgiveness through that act of belief. We believe that he forgave us, contract is fulfilled, we're good to go. But reading through the New Testament, this is what I want you to see. This is what I hope that you or your heart will fully embrace before you leave today. Reading through the New Testament reveals that God has a much fuller expectation of what the redeemed life looks like. A much fuller expectation for you to experience and enjoy life in Christ more than just to be able to, to uh, put a notch on your belt that you're forgiven. It's so much more. He is offering so much more to you than just a clean rap sheet. When we come to Christ, He is offering us eternal union, a literal fusing of our life with Christ. More than being just forgiven, more than just being admitted into heaven, God, let this, let this just soak you, this thought, this, just marinate in it. That God is inviting you into the perfect, eternal, unbroken fellowship that has always existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you really understand that, when it becomes 
more than just some platitude that a preacher says, when you really understand that you've been invited to deep union, to to being welded together with the God of the universe, it will absolutely awe you. It will absolutely humble you. Salvation is so much more. When we sing a song that says, God is my salvation. We're saying that God is so much more than a clean record and a ticket to heaven. He's so much more than that. Union with Christ, this union that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to present to you this morning, it's accomplished by God alone through the death of Christ. It's not something that anyone can, any one of us can make happen. We don't, we don't uh, present our resume to God or make some kind of, as I said earlier, contractual obligation to God. It's a work of God that God invites us in and welds us together with himself. It, it's, it's something that only he can do. It's not just a simple transaction. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a, there's a lengthy uh, explanation or, or a, kind, of a, a, kind of a treatise on what I'm trying to share with you this morning. It begins in verse 17. Most of you are pretty familiar with the first verse, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's what I'm talking about. You're not the same person as you were a month ago. You're a brand new creation. In fact, it's confirmed by these next two phrases. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It's an entirely, it's not even a renovation. It's an entirely new creation. It, it, sometimes we'll see around town where they'll have a structure that may have been there for years, and it's part of the landscape, and they will send the bulldozers in and just level it to the ground. And in a few weeks, you see this beautiful new structure come up. That's what Christ did for you. He did not go in and put up a new chandelier or a, a coat of paint. He came in, he bulldozed the whole stinking thing, and he put up a brand new glorious structure Beautiful before God. So therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now listen to this. All this is from God. Remember I said that we can't do this on our own. God does it. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses or sins against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, if I asked you in one word, that passage I just read to you, what in one word is the theme of that passage? Would you say, would any of you fire back to me that the theme of that passage is forgiveness? No. The theme of that passage that's stated, some form of the word is stated five times in four verses. The theme of that passage is reconciliation. Taking that which was estranged and bringing it back together. See, what you need to understand is that, that God here mentions five times that his goal through Christ was to reconcile us to himself, to bring us back together. We were estranged, we were enemies, we were aliens, we were foreigners from each other, and God wanted to bring us back together through Christ. He doesn't even mention the concept of forgiveness except for one quick phrase where he says that God was not counting their trespasses against them. What is God trying to communicate to us? 
See, God is more concerned through the cross with reconnecting with us relationally. What does that mean? Think Garden of Eden. A, a, a pair, a, a couple created in a perfect world, in a, in a sinless environment, to walk before God in, in beauty and holiness and without shame and without, without fear, without offense to each other, walking before God and totally at peace in perfect fellowship with God. That is the ideal of what God is recreating in you through Christ. The Garden of Eden, taking you back to where God comes to you in the cool of the day to walk with you because of the intimate and high degree of fellowship that you have with them. And God is much more concerned with reconnecting with you relationally, far more concerned than he is about forgiving your sinful deeds. Now, hold on, Mark. Are you saying that God's not concerned about forgiving us? Absolutely not. Because see this, this is what you got to understand about forgiveness. God is so infinitely, perfectly holy. He cannot be stained by any of your sin. So therefore, if he is going to have fellowship with you, your sin must be forgiven. It is the prerequisite to your fellowship. But it seems when you read this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, that God is actually looking past forgiveness to something more. Forgiveness of our sins is the start of something infinitely bigger. It's a means. The forgiveness of your sins is a means and not an end in itself. And that's where we've tripped up in our understanding of the cross, in our understanding of salvation. We've thought, I am forgiven, check that box, and we're good. And God is saying, I want so much more with you. Imagine you who are married, you who have a spouse. If all you wanted was a marriage license, think about that, how absurd that would be. No intimacy, no communication, no companionship, no mutual serving with each other. Just a marriage license. Just prove that we're connected legally. And so many of us have approached the cross and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ exactly like that. Just give me the marriage license, God. I don't want intimacy. I don't want fellowship. I don't want communion. I just want to be legally recognized as belonging to you. What a shame. The idea of union, as a matter of fact, is beautifully illustrated in the scriptures in the image of the church as the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Revelation, all three of these books and other places, I'm sure, use bride imagery to describe the church. When Christ walked on the earth, it was in the first century, it was common for a, a man to pay a bride price for the privilege of taking a young woman as his wife. It wasn't as, as simple of a process as it was then. There, there were arrangements made with the family and, a, and usually a large sum of money transferred for the, from the groom to the bride's family to take her as his wife. And what I want you to see this morning is that if you are to be the bride of Christ, there was an infinitely high bride price paid for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. He spilled out his blood. He spilled out his very life. He was separated from his father so that he might purchase you as his very own. 
when a man and woman are married, Scripture tells us this in both Old and New Testament, when they're married, the expectation is that they are going to leave their family of origin and cleave to one another. Ginger is no longer in the, in the, in the essential sense, in the, in the primary sense of her identity, she's no longer Bill Payne's daughter. She's Mark Sharp's wife. She's left her family. She's, she's cleaved to me. She's become part of me. They leave their family. They, they cleave to one another. They become in, ideally one flesh, one mind, one spirit, completing each other in loving relationship. And I want you to hear this, church. You have been called to union, marital, bridal union with Jesus Christ. You've been called to that kind of union. What does that entail? It means to say goodbye to everything else that was familiar in your life. It means to say goodbye to everything that is infused with the, the attractions of this world. It's to say goodbye to that and cling to Him only, forsaking all others and every other selfish pursuit. We exist for Him alone now. And if I may be so crass, He will not tolerate us sharing our bed with anyone else. We exist for Him But that's not where the Bible stops. It also illustrates the idea of union by calling us not just the bride of Christ, but the body of Christ. We're told that we are various members of his body. We are his hands, his feet, his eyes, his mouth. We are are the various parts. Paul says it in in two different books of his, that we are the parts of his body. And, And we no longer, as the parts of his body, we no longer act independently. We must remain connected to the head in order to have a meaningful existence. Now, this is absurd, but let's say that my foot this morning did not like this message I was preaching. My foot cannot decide to be separated from my body and go walking out the door. That would be freaky if it happened. And you guys would get on Facebook, you'd take pictures, tell everybody what had happened. But as absurd as that is, we sometimes think that if, if, if I, as the foot of the body, do not like what the mouth is saying, that I can just split and be, not be a part of the body. But in order to do that, in order to separate from the mouth, or from the hand, or from the ear, or from the belly button for that matter, I have to separate from the head. Are you hearing me? See, my part, my part of the body is not just being connected to you. That's a very important part of that illustration. But more importantly, because I'm the foot, I'm connected to the head. And who is the head? Who's the head? Jesus is the head. See, we no longer act independently. We have to remain connected to the head. But even more than that, Jesus had his own illustration. He says this in John fifteen four. He says, abide in me, live in me, is what that word means, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What a powerful illustration this is. In our backyard, we have a pergola. And on that pergola, before we moved there, some people planted several grapevines. And every year, 
We have to trim those vines back. And what happens is it just explodes in life every year because we, we trim those branches back. But let me tell you something. What I have never seen is I have never taken a branch off that, thrown it aside, and then gone to that branch expecting it to bear fruit, expecting that branch to have any form of life outside of its connection to the vine. And so many of us as believers, we live outside the connection to the vine and we are wondering why we're not bearing fruit. We bear fruit when we're connected. We bear fruit when we're abiding. We bear fruit when we're living in the vine. Union with Christ means, this is what it means. This is the bottom line. Union with Christ means that we don't live as the same people with only slightly different values after we accept Christ. It means a radical change of life. It means that everything changes. It means that we draw our life and our identity from beyond our talents, from beyond our abilities, from beyond our wisdom, from beyond our strength, from beyond our riches. We abide in Christ as the source of our life. We often, all of us, at one time or another... We view the, the benefits of the gospel that we believe as, the, as what has been given to us by Christ. In other words, Christ distributes the benefits of the gospel as we, as we meet the, the requirements, the belief, the contract, the transaction I mentioned. But see, the, the New Testament doesn't talk about us receiving things by Christ as much as it talks to us about receiving things because we are in Christ. And that's radically different. Radically different. In other words, Christ doesn't just hand out blessings like a new father handing out cigars, but blessings abound to us because we are in Him. Instead of thinking of Christ giving out life and salvation, we should realize that we have life and salvation because Christ is sharing His life with us. The scripture even says that. Watch this, Colossians 3. For you have died. Well, that's a great way to start a message, isn't it? You've died. You're dead. If you want to know what that means, go to Romans chapter 6. It says, you've died to sin. When Christ died, you died. You're died. You're dead. You are not a factor anymore. You are dead. But guess what? Your life, this, this daily activity, this brain waves and lung activity, all of that, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Because you're dead. So now any life you have is the result of your connection to Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, not who gives you life, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. The Bible says, listen to this. I, I want you to, this week, I want you to spend some time in the New Testament, especially the epistles, and I want you to look for the phrase. I want you to mentally prepare yourself to look for the phrase in Christ. Let me give you a little uh, preview of what the Bible is going to tell you that you have in Christ. The Bible says that we have redemption, eternal life, freedom from condemnation, freedom from sin and death, the love of God, the fellowship of the body, sanctification, grace, wisdom, righteousness, spiritual family, triumph and victory, justification, the blessing of Abraham, encouragement, and more and more and more. Why? All because we are in Christ. And none of this, as Second Corinthians tells us, comes from our own work, but it's all the result of grace. 
I'm telling you, union with Christ, being united to Christ is so much more. I'll say it for probably the third or fourth time. It's so much more than forgiveness in heaven when you die. It's so much more, so much more. Through Christ and through his resurrection, through his cross and his resurrection, God has claimed us for himself. Like a, like a groom does a bride. He's claimed us for himself in an unbreakable eternal union. All of us uh, who are his, if you belong to him, remember this and strive to keep that reality at the forefront of your mind. It's the basis, this reality of Christ, of our being united with Christ is the whole basis. It's the whole foundation of the Apostle Paul saying in Romans 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, for love of God in Christ Jesus. If anything could separate us, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, we would have to be separated from Christ Jesus. And nothing's going to separate. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, you've given them to me and no one can snatch them out of my hand. You belong to Jesus. You're united with Jesus. You're married to Jesus. You are connected to the vine of Jesus. You are one with Jesus, if you are a believer. And this close union that was established on the cross for everyone who believed leads to the greatest benefit of all Christians. For all Christians, this is better than anything else I could present to you. It's better than forgiveness. It's even better than heaven. Because we are united to God in Christ, we have the invitation, open invitation, to enjoy close communion and intimate fellowship with Him. That's amazing. Some of you love like, you know, different celebrities, sports stars, movie stars. You love different celebrities. And if today uh, you had gotten a, a, a text that says, hey, this is so-and-so, some big celebrity, and I want to spend the week with you in my house in Maui, whatever, all of you would tell everybody about how excited you are about that. And I'm not saying this to make you feel bad because we're all like this. We're all sinners. And so we, our, our minds disconnect from this reality. But do you realize that the author of everything that is created, the one who, who literally the Bible says leads every single star of the billions of stars, he leads them out at night. That same God has said, I want to know you. And not for a week, but for all eternity, I want to to know you. And more than that, I want you to know everything there is to know about me. And yet we yawn our way through that fact. We yawn our way through that fact and Christ is offering all of himself to us. Some of you need to realign your thinking about God. See, God is a personal being. He is not an impersonal force like in Star Wars. God has a will. God loves. God thinks. God plans. God responds. God feels. And God communicates. And the great joy of being one of his people is that he longs to know us in a personal way. He wants to be known by those who call him Lord. In John 17, Jesus is praying right before he goes to cross. The whole chapter is his prayer to the Father. And right at the beginning, Jesus, in the only place in scriptures, defines what he means when he talks about eternal life. 
And this is the definition. It says, and this is eternal life. Praying to the Father that they know you. Now let that sink in just a minute. This is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is not about you having a mansion in utopia. I better say that again because I just steamrolled and, and bulldozed some of your theology. Eternal life has nothing to do with you having a mansion in some heavenly utopia. Eternal life is that you have the opportunity throughout every age that will ever be, you have the opportunity to know, to love, and to be known and and loved by and enjoy God, your creator. That's eternal life, to know God, to know Jesus Christ. God wants us to be more than just passively saved by him, a contract, a, a notch on our belt. He wants us to know him and to trust him and to love him and to pray to him and to worship him. In short, God wants us to enjoy him. And that's what communion with God, fellowship with Christ means. Best way to illustrate this is from a story in the Gospels, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, and as they went, they as the Jesus and the disciples, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my lazy, sorry, broken down sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But watch verse 42 very closely. But one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Listen to what that verse is telling you. I don't even need to commentate on it much. Except maybe to ask you a question. Have you, in the last week, have you enjoyed the sweet fellowship of Christ? Have you enjoyed sitting at his feet? Have you enjoyed listening to his voice? Have you enjoyed learning of him and taking his yoke upon you and finding that he is meek and lowly and that his burden is easy? Have you, have you learned that? Have you enjoyed that kind of fellowship? See, many of us, even the best of believers, are more like Martha than Mary. We're distracted with much serving our eyes are, are always on our, our unsanctified areas of our lives and we, we fret over those and we work busily to, to do better. Or they're on some act of ministry that needs to be done, some plan, some scheme we have to expand the kingdom. Our Christian lives are filled with anxiety and we are troubled about many things. And my question is, be honest, does that describe you? And if it does, in the name of Jesus Christ, let me remind you 
one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. And that one necessary thing is to be in fellowship with Jesus. And just to be clear about what that means, to be in fellowship with Jesus is infinitely more important than prayer, than worship, than Bible study. Well, if it's more important than that, what is fellowship with Jesus? Let me explain. Some people work hard at praying. I talk to them all the time. What what I mean is they get up early, they set a timer to make sure they pray long enough. They keep a journal. They have reminders on their phones to remind them to pray. And I'm sure, I'm not beating them up. I'm sure that some of those things can be really, really helpful. Don't stop if you're doing that. But, but what I want to ask you is, is over and against that, when was the last time you simply got alone with Jesus and spent 15 minutes telling him how much you love him and how much you are thankful for all that he has done in your life? That's different than setting a timer and making sure you check something off your list. When was the last time you opened the word of the Lord, the Bible, not just to check a box on a reading plan, but to literally just sit there and sponge up syllables and sentences that were dripping with grace, dripping with life, dripping with truth. When was the last time you lingered over a single word or a phrase and let it burn in you throughout the entire day? That is the better part to choose. Jesus said Mary has chosen the better part. That kind of approach to Jesus is so much better. There's nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that can take that kind of fellowship away from you. Until you're feeding your soul with that kind of communion, you haven't even scratched the surface of what belongs to you as someone who is in union with Christ. And I'm talking about full communion fully enjoying the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you live this way, you will feel it quickly when you pull away for a season. You will miss the sweetness of Christ's nearness. You will miss the, assur- the reassurance that, uh, of His place in every thought. You will miss His guidance in your every action and pursuit. And yet, as I said at the beginning, many of us are happy just to be saved. We've, we've either never known the depth of our union with Christ or we've just been just too satisfied to enjoy the gifts to the neglect of the giver. But as our text reminded us, Jesus is not so much interested in having us as servants as he is in calling us friends. Man, what a powerful blessing. See, serving is important. It's really important. Don't misunderstand me. Remember that even in the beginning of our text, Jesus said, you are my friends when, if you do what I command you. Serving is important. But what I want you to see is the servant, a slave, obeys out of duty. They, they obey because they have no option. They do what they got to do. But when someone looks at Jesus and recognizes themselves as his friend, they begin to serve out of love, out of power, and out of the wisdom that, that flows from their master friend. The motivation is completely different. And so this morning, are you a servant, a slave, or are you the friend of Christ? Jesus says the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. Do you want to know the will of God? Well, if you do, it's not a secret that you have to unlock. You don't have to hold your mouth just right when you pray. The will of God is laid out crystal clear. You know who? To whom? 
It's laid out crystal clear to his friends. The Bible says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Friendship with the Lord. Listen, what are the benefits of it? Friendship with the Lord will give you meaning to your suffering. It will restrain your selfishness and your madness in times of prosperity. It will give you insight to the problems that you and other people you love face. It will illuminate the deep things in the Word. Why wouldn't we pursue deep communion with Jesus Christ? But fellowship with Him also means that we desire to please Him. His fellowship is offered for our growing, our cleansing, our flourishing. He will not turn a blind eye to a closet full of secret sins and maintain fellowship. Imagine, and I encourage you to to at least do this first part. Imagine that you've made a decision that, hey, I love Mark. He's a good pastor and I'm going to invite him over for dinner every single week. Anybody wants to take me up on that? You just go right ahead. It's fine. I want to invite Mark over every single week. But let's say that I showed up at your house every single week. And you made for me a big old pile of liver and onions. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I despise, more than I despise hardly anything on the face of this planet, liver and onions. I hate them. They're disgusting. I don't know what, how hungry somebody was that they first ate that. I have no idea. I can't stand them. So if you kept doing that, even after, you know, maybe I'd be polite the first or second time, but if you kept doing that, guess what? I'm going to figure out sooner or later. They don't really want me over at their house. They're not, they're not making an environment that is inviting to me. Listen to what Jesus says, or through the, through the words of the apostle John. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sin is offensive to God. If we confess that it's there, if all we do is just confess that it's there, He will help us to be free from it. But if we embrace it, if we act like it's no big deal, we cannot expect to remain in close communion with the Lord Jesus. But fellowship and communion with Christ isn't achieved and maintained by being perfect. That's not what I'm saying. Because if it was, then none of us would ever have communion or fellowship with Christ. What what God is asking us for is to be truthful and to be open to his searching eyes and his forgiving and healing hand. Sanctification, listen to this, sanctification is the glorious benefit of close communion with Jesus. We don't earn communion with Jesus by being sanctified. We stay in communion with Jesus and we are sanctified. Follow me on that? We don't earn it. We don't clean up our act so Jesus will want to be with us. We say, Jesus, I'm coming to you with all of my garbage. And in being with him, he cleans us up. The next verse says that. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, honesty, truthfulness, exposed to God, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You want to break free from sin? Pesky, nasty, stinking little sins that bite at your ankles day in and day out? Get close to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Find fellowship with Jesus and you will find freedom. So this is it. Last question. I'm done. Wouldn't today be a great day to be more than just saved? Wouldn't it be a great day to be more than just saved? Wouldn't it be a great day to be intimately reconciled to God 
through true fellowship and communion with him. You've already been invited to the table. Already been, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to qualify. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're qualified. All you got to do is come to the table. It's already been set for you. Come and dine. And that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to come to the table and share in the Lord's supper together, the representative elements of his body and blood. This table represents something. You know, I, I might need to have a discussion with you or do business with you, so I'll, I'll take you to lunch or you'll take me to lunch or something like that. But the table in Jesus' day, in the, in the day when Jesus walked the earth, was so much more when I invited you to my table or you invited me to your table, you were saying not just I want to eat with you or I'm going to be a nice guy and feed you. You were saying I want to know you. And that's the beauty of this table is that Christ has told us to come often to his table to realize that he wants to know you. He's invited. The table's set. It's spread. He wants you. He wants you at his table. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you ought to want to be there. Because it's at this table, this literal table, where we remember what he did, the bride price that he paid to purchase us, the, the, uh, the, the brokenness that his body experienced to heal us. He, he did all that just so that he could be reconciled to us and have fellowship with us. Are your sins forgiven? If forgiven, of course they are. But there's so much more that God wants for you. He wants to know you. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants to hear your voice. He wants you to walk in intimate communication, intimate communion with him. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to invite you to come and take these elements back to your table, uh, back to your seat, and then we will take them together. Remember when you come through, if you would, just to uh, uh, try to maintain some some form of social distancing. Um, and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your invitation to know you and to have fellowship with you, to be in communion with you. Lord, I pray that you would just make this real to us and that, Lord, uh, we would not uh, be distracted with much serving like Martha or uh, anxious and fretful over the minor details of life. But, Lord, I pray that this would be a week where we hear you over and over again calling us to your table, calling us to communion with you, calling us to fellowship with you, calling us into something that is more than than servanthood or slavery, that you're calling us into friendship, Lord. And we thank you that that is the kind of God we serve that has reconciled us through Christ. Jesus' name, amen. You can come and and receive your elements and then we'll, we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul wrote these familiar words to the Corinthians that we read every week. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take your wafer. Father, we thank you for the, for the body of Jesus that was broken for us, Lord, that, that the scriptures tell us that it pleased the Lord to crush him so that we would be united, reconciled, brought into fellowship with you. So Lord, we thank you for this unspeakably large gift that brings us into intimacy with the creator of everything. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread together.
Scripture says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we and likewise we thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes us clean, makes us righteous, that justifies us before a holy God so that we can be in fellowship and relationship and, and communion with you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we walk in the light, as you are in the light, that we would have fellowship with you and the blood of the Lord Jesus would cleanse us from all sin. Let's take the cup together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. If you would, just place your hands in a receiving position. I want to just speak a benediction over you in light of the Scripture and, and meeting around the Lord's table. The Bible says that may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. You're dismissed.